Well, take your Bible, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We are moving our way through this book. We will come to the conclusion of our family portion of the book today. Ephesians chapter 6, I'll begin reading at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we we depend upon your sovereignty, Lord, in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. We depend greatly upon your kindness and your grace in our life. And Lord, we we recognize, we we understand that the people that you have here today, you've designed to be here to hear this message. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we can trust in a God who is gracious and kind and is working in our lives as well as everyone. You are a merciful God, but you're great and powerful. And you are a God to be respected and feared. Lord, as we open your word today, may we glean its precious truths. May may we understand the message that you have for us and not just for us but for the churches down through the ages lord help us to have clear picture of what it means to be a loving father it affects so much father we thank you for being a loving father to us we pray these things in jesus name amen in the 1950s um, that the police department in Houston, Texas, issued a leaflet. This leaflet was entitled, 12 Rules for Raising Delinquent Children. If you want to raise delinquent children, here's what you do. And this is coming from the, the police department. Number one, begin at infancy to give your child everything he wants. In this way, he grows up to believe that the world owes him a living. Number two, when he picks picks up bad words, laugh at him. This will make him think that he's cute and he's more likely to pick up other cute phrases. Number three, give him no spiritual training. Wait till he's 21 and let him decide for himself. Number four, Avoid the use of the word wrong. It, will, it may develop a guilt complex. And this will, this will conduct him to believe or um, cause him to believe that when he uh, is older, when he uh, uh, is arrested for stealing a car, the, the society is against him. He will understand that society is against him and that he is being persecuted. Number five, pick up every uh, pick up everything that he leaves lying around, books, shoes, clothing. Do everything for him so that he will be experienced throwing all responsibilities on someone else. Number six, let him read any printed material, and we would say today anything on the internet that he would want to read. Number seven, quarrel frequently in the presence of your children. In this way, they will not be too shocked when this family is broken up later. 
Number eight, give the child all the, all the spending money he wants. Never let him earn it. Why should they not have everything that you didn't have? Number nine, satisfy his every craving for food, drink, and comfort. See to it that every sensual desire is gratified. Uh, denial may lead to harmful frustration. Number 10, take his part against neighbors, teachers, or policemen. They are all prejudiced against your child. Number 11, when he gets into real trouble, apologize to yourself by saying, I never could do anything with him anyway. And then number 12 is prepare for a life of misery. Prepare to be grieved Now, I hope you understand the sarcasm behind that, but unfortunately, that's the mindset of many people that we have today. They have that type of mindset. We may even call that a victim mindset today. But I hope you realize that that is not the way to raise children. That's not what you do. Children, when they are born, when they come out, you might say... They know nothing. They know nothing. They cannot defend themselves. They cannot protect themselves. They cannot provide for themselves. The only thing that they have going for them is that they're cute and they're cuddly. It is God's design that children be born within the family, within a mother and a father to protect them and to provide for them. It's obvious that that's God's design. And in the Scripture, we see that Scripture goes beyond that and gives further responsibilities that parents, primarily dads, are to provide an environment for their children and for their home where there's right values and where there's godly, where godliness can thrive. Christ is an example of this. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, Christ kept increasing in wisdom and stature, that's physical, and in favor with God, that would be spiritual, and favor with man, that would be social. There's four categories in which Christ grew, and those four categories would be appropriate for us today. But here's the point. God wants you to shape your children. He is shaping your children through you. He is using you to shape your children. He is using you in the sanctification process. We've seen through the book of Ephesians here that um, we found that God has called us to a special task. He has worked in our life and we are to now walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We are set apart. We are to live different kinds of lives. We're to be different from the world. We're to be different. We are to no longer walk in darkness, but we are to walk in light. We are to no longer walk in lust, but we are to walk in love. We are to no longer walk in the flesh, but in the spirit. We're to be different from the world. Our marriages are to be different. The way we raise our children are to be different. Our families are to be unique. God has His demands on our lives. If you claim to be a Christian, God has the right to intrude into your daily walk and say, you do it this way. And we've seen 
beginning in chapter 5, verse 22, that wives are to be respectfully submitted to their husbands. Husbands are to, to lovingly lead their wives and their children, their families. Children then are to obey with an attitude of, of honor. And in this one verse, that he wraps up the family portion uh, in, this, in this section, we see that parents are to provide godly training. Parents are to provide godly training. And the point that you see on the screen there, and this is, this is the, the broader picture here, is that the dominant characteristic of a godly family is that the children and the parents both are genuinely motivated to please God by fulfilling their God-given responsibilities. They recognize God has that authority in their life. God has designed them to have responsibilities. And they're motivated, genuinely motivated, to make sure that they fulfill those godly responsibilities. That's the way a godly family is to function. This particular verse, though, answers a question for us. We've answered, or we've talked about, or we've looked at different questions through this series. But here's the question. How can parents provide an atmosphere in which children can grow to bring glory to God within the family? How can that happen? It is so complex. It is so hard to raise children, especially in these days. <clears throat> Surely there's, there's got to be a way to do it. And Paul gives us that. But again... Just like in all of this, this whole section, these principles are very, very simple. But they are not simplistic. In fact, if we do them, we find that they will help. And they will work. The hardest part, though, is the doing. is the recognizing when it needs to be done and doing the right thing at the right time. And it's really very simple principles. Paul gives us, in this particular verse, Paul gives us two basic commands in which, in which to be, become a godly parent. First, he gives us the negative command. Here's what not to do. And then he gives us a positive command. Here's, here's what to do. Here's, here's how to do it, even. So, number one. And by the way, there is a an handout. If you uh, look in your bulletin, there's a handout there with the outlined um, on it. Point number one is very clear in the passage. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke. That's the command. Do not provoke fathers. Fathers is representative here for the, the parents. It's not that mothers are not involved in this verse. We see that in the greater context here in verse, actually verse two, honor your father and mother. That's your parents. Clearly, the, the mother is involved here, and we see that throughout Scripture. The, the parents are together in the rearing of children. But the point here is that, that fathers are ultimately burdened with this responsibility. They are responsible for the family and the way the family functions. They are to manage their household, as we see in other Scripture. Now, this is an important characteristic for us men to grasp. We need to understand this. And I want you to turn to Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at two quick passages here. Titus chapter 1, 
verse 5. I want you to see how important this is and why this is so important. Titus chapter 1, we see Paul writing a letter to Titus, his, his disciple whom he left in the, uh, on the island of Crete. Verse 5, he gives us this. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city, as I have directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, now he's getting into the family, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation, or rebellion. And then he goes on, for the overseer must be above reproach. And he goes on and gives personal characteristics. But I just want to point out that Paul thinks it's important enough that he point out that these elders or these potential elders have families that are characterized in a certain way. So what he's saying to Titus, Titus, I want you to appoint elders. And when you're going out to look for elders, here's what you look for. Here's, here's how you can identify the people in whom, uh, whose life I am working. Uh, talking uh, concerning the Lord in whose life God is working. If you see that God has worked in this guy's life, you'll see that it played out in the family. Husbands of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation. That would be a debauched lifestyle, and that would be the negative side of it. And or rebellion, rebellion against against authority, or rebellion against parents. Now turn over to First Timothy, First Timothy chapter three. We see the same commands there, or the same characteristics there. But again, it's in the in the point of, or in the section of overseer or elder. In verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man desires to be an, uh, desires the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, resp- respect, respectable. Hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. In verse 4, draw our attention to, he must be one who manages his own house well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. With all dignity. So you begin to get the point here, and and, and this is a a different letter, this is to Timothy, Paul is saying, now Timothy, again, when you're choosing elders, here's the qualification, and it has to be, you have to base it upon what has God done in their life and how that is being evidenced within the family, and it affects how he controls his children. Now, Wayne Mack has uh, written some comments concerning this verse that I thought were pretty interesting. Here's how a, a godly man manages his family. Here's what he needs to do and to know. Number one, he needs to know his family members. He needs to know his family members. He needs to be in their world. He needs to have goals and plans for his family. He needs to see the big picture. He is the leader of that family. He is 
He, he needs to know how to delegate and to motivate his family to accomplish things together as a family. Maybe even ministering together. He has to know how to get along with people. He needs to have certain level of social skills. And he has to have some foresight. He has to be able to anticipate certain situations. When children go to school, what is it going to be like for them? And how to help them. Um, or how to handle peer pressure. Or dating situations. Or sexual encounters. Or sexual desires. He has to know those things. Now, again, this is difficult. Difficult. He has to be available, approachable, and accessible to his family. This is no easy task. In fact, that's kind of the point. That's the point. This should drive every man. In fact, here's, here's what we see. What's happening here is that God is working in a man's heart. And it begins to show up uh, within his character. And it begins to show up within his home. And he becomes more and more different from the world. More and more unique as God works in his home or in his life and in the life of his, of, in the life of his family. So what we see is raising children, the way we raise our children, the way our men, our husbands, and our fathers raise their children... That's crucial to the church. Can they do that? If they can, then we need to, hey, we need to consider them as candidates for an elder. Now, like I said, this is a hard task. And the question we have to ask just by way of application, has the gospel changed our life or not? Is this real in our life, men, Do you see this change in your life? Is it being worked out in your home, in your family? Is God working to sanctify you or not? Is God working to bring you and set you apart by the way you treat your family? It will be seen. It will be seen. Men, I must say, we dare not play games. We dare not play games with God. If we claim to believe the Word of God, we need to obey the Word of God. We cannot play church. When we're looking for elders, these are qualifications that we have to look for. We have to have men who are convicted with conviction and who are, who are responsible to say that we will take our responsibility seriously in raising our children. Now, note the last three words there in 1 Timothy. It says, with all dignity. That's just icing on the cake. That's hard to do. That's even harder to do. You have to get these children to obey without yelling. You, you have to do this without threatening to beat them. You have to do this with dignity. Like I keep saying, this is hard to do. And it's hard to do because we're in charge to, to bring sanctification in our child's life and to teach them the things of the Lord and how to glorify the Lord. And we turn around and we look and we see that they're picking up our bad habits and our bad attitudes and our messed up bad communications. It's hard. And the bottom line is 
We put forth all of this effort, and we should, but we find that we can't do it. We cannot do it. And that's, again, the very point. This should drive us to our knees and drive us to cry out to the Lord for mercy. And it reminds me of that tax collector in Luke chapter 18 where he beats his breast and he cries out to the Lord, says, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the example. That's the example of a godly husband that realizes he cannot do it. And a godly father who who realizes he's got sinful people, sinful human hearts that he's responsible for. And he realizes it's not really up to him. He can only do so much. He He can't really work in the heart. But God says he is to try. He is to do certain things. He is to set a certain environment for his, his family. And really the point ultimately is to point men toward God. Is to point us all toward God because we realize this is a God-sized task. We cannot do it on our own. Now let's look at the words that Paul uses. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The word provoke there. The word provoke is to cause to be angry, uh, exasperate. The idea here, the picture is um, of a garden. And you plant this garden, you water this garden, you, you take the weeds out of this garden, and hopefully it will grow. You try to fertilize this garden, and hopefully it will yield a fruit Now, it's a natural thing for parents to get frustrated with children. Um, It's a natural thing for parents to try to change the children's heart. Just just obey. You can hear the frustration. And you all have, if you're dealing with children, you've all been frustrated with them. And we tend to push them. Sometimes children are smaller, they're limited, and children are weaker, and sometimes we push them to beyond limits to, to make them angry. But he says, do not provoke your children to anger. And what we find is we cannot change our child's heart, but God does. And so we try to do it on the, on the external. Sometimes we just force them into submission as opposed to dealing with the heart. And sometimes when we do that, that creates an environment that is that causes them to just be angry. Now, I want you to think about this idea of how to provoke a child to anger. We're not to do that as husbands. Here's what it doesn't mean, though. It doesn't mean to never oppose your child or to never deny them or cross them or displease them. We know that that's not what this means. In fact, what we see that it's not talking about a quick-tempered, just a, a flash of anger, but this is more of a, a deep-seated anger. We see that what, what he's getting at, what Paul is talking about here, is stimulating your child to a wrathful kind of lifestyle. Paul says, do not do that. Do not do that. In the Scripture, we see two kinds of anger. The first kind is the blow-up kind, the, the kind that uh, is hostility and open rebellion. I think you get the point. This other kind is the kind that he is addressing here. 
And it's a, it's a passive, aggressive kind of anger. It, it can lead to apathy or pulling away or indifference or bottled up anger. That's the idea. Bottled up anger within the child. And he says, do not provoke your children to that kind of anger. To, to cause them to grow up to be angry young men and young women. Now, how can we do that? How can we provoke our children to anger? If it's not a flash kind of anger and just a quick anger, but it's a seething lifestyle of anger, how do we do that? What kind of environment do we need to set to kind of, to, to cause, uh, uh, an angry child? Let me give you a, a list. <laughs> There's 17. 17. Here's 17 ways. You can say 17 ways to, Create an angry child or to ruin your child's life. Overprotect them. Shelter them to the point they can't do anything. That's going to frustrate them. Overindulge them. Give them everything they want. That's what uh, was addressed in the, uh, in the Houston, Texas, the police department pamphlet. Play favorites. Pit one against the other. Uh, set unrealistic goals. Discourage them. Neglect them. Be condescending to them. Withhold love to them. We'll explain some of these in just a minute. Number nine, excessively discipline them. Abuse them physically. Punching them, kicking them, slapping them, shoving them, those kinds of things. That's using force. Using force to get them to submit. Uh, Abuse them psychologically. Call them names. Like clumsy or, or no good or stupid. And you know what? I've seen this more, not so much the names, but just the attitude behind the words. And number 12, constantly find fault with them. Refuse to listen to them. Don't get their input. Don't let them have any part of the decision-making process. Be overly permissive. And the idea here is, I don't want my children to be inhibited, to grow up inhibited. We want them to, to get rid of all of those inhibitions. And that's our world today. Um, you hear that quite a bit. I don't want my child to, uh, to be squelched in their creativity. And those two things become king inhibitions or uninhibitions and creativity. In verse in number 15, demand too much of them intellectually, spiritually. Just demand too much. How about wrong, wrong, um, or double standards? Changing the standards. Something's wrong today, but it's not wrong tomorrow. And it depends upon your mood or your energy level. That's going to create all of these things. are going to create an environment in which there's going to be bitterness and anger within the child. And one last one is having or have constant marital and parent, uh, parental discord or conflict. You do those things and you're guaranteed a child that's going to be angry and frustrated with you and with the rest of the world. And parents, <clears throat> by way of application, what are you doing? Are you giving your child any reason to, to have that kind of anger within them? 
Are you provoking them? Or are you trying to prevent this kind of embittered angerness? You need to evaluate. You need to evaluate your home. Are you doing these kinds of things? Now, Paul gives us what to do wrong. This is the negative command. If we want to provide an environment uh, uh, for in which godliness can thrive, we need to make sure that we're not provoking our children to anger. That's so important. Don't underestimate this. It's a very simple command. But if we underestimate these little simple commands, we will go off. We will make the wrong decisions. Number two. Number two, bring them up. That's another command. Bring them up in the discipline, of the, discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up is to, to provide food and nourishment for or to rear to rear them up, to bring up children. And again, the idea is the, the garden where you water and you, you, um, you weed and you fertilize and you provide the right conditions so this, this child may flourish. But notice it is, a, it is a, an active verb. This is not a passive thing. This can't be just, I'm going to provide an environment. No, it goes beyond that. And I'm going to bring them up. I'm going to cause them to grow in the things of the Lord. And it's a continuous action. It's not something that, well, you've arrived when you get to be 10 years old, and so I don't have to do any more. In fact, I'm finding out that when you're 47, your parents are still working on you. It's a continuous action. And in And it's also in a certain direction. It's in the Lord. Bring them up in the Lord. That's the sphere. That's the environment in which you are to bring them up. You are to not listen to the world's advice, but to listen to God's advice and to bring them up within the Lord, in the things of the Lord, or as the Lord would bring them up. That's the idea. And he gives us two tools in which to do that. In the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And you know what? Anything worthwhile takes both. It takes discipline and instruction. If you become, um, uh, if you join the military, they're going to put you under strict discipline. And they're going to give you lots of instruction. If you join the police force or the, the, air, uh, the, um, the firemen, or to become a, a fireman, they're going to have those disciplines and instructions. Now, we as godly parents want to have discipline and instruction concerning the Lord. Concerning the Lord. The discipline here, the idea, the basic idea is training. Training. Now, there's kids right now being trained for the 2012 Olympics. And they are, they are under grueling hours of training for those that particular one event. They're training. That's external force being forced upon them. They're under, they're under discipline. For 19 to 20 years, parents, what we do is we move, move through different phases, don't we, of discipline and instruction of our children. And children need this a, a loving authority but it also an active discipline. Why? Because we have to rescue them from the dangers to come. 
And the rescuing or the dangers to come are greater than the, than the discipline that we might put on them. In fact, the discipline is for their own safety and their own protection. And it, it's minor compared to what can happen and the dangers that are out there. Dangers in the world. The dangers from sin. The dangers of eternal damnation. Eternal punishment. When we look at it from that perspective, that's huge. A little discipline now is, is nothing compared to the dangers that await your child. And there's three stages that we find in children. Uh, basically, one to five, uh, you are, you're trying to protect, protect them from these dangers and the corruption. And you do this by spanking them. Getting, getting a, a little sting prevents, it goes a long way of preventing uh, from touching that stove again. In the next stage, when your children are from 6 to probably 12, what we're trying to do is trying to teach our children a certain value system. We want them to understand what's important. And we use... Uh, we, we work on the heart. We have to address the heart issues and we address their conscience. We appeal to the conscience and address their development, uh, a character. We're developing character in their life and we use instruction and correction in those, in those times. We also use examples and rebuke and appeals to them. And by the time they get into their teen years, what we want is our values to become their values. And we use primarily decision-making and consequences. They make a certain decision and they receive certain consequences as a result of that decision. So we see these stages, but in every stage, they're dealing with sin. In fact, parenting is very, very much like a police force. Police have to know crime, don't they? That's their world. They have, to, they have to understand motives. They have to understand the law. They have to understand people to a certain extent and how to correct these things. And so parenting is very much like that police force. We have to know. What do we have to know? Not just crime. We have to know sin. We have to know the sinful heart and what the heart is doing within that in that child and sin is doing within that child. And what we have to do is move our children from ungodly behavior, thoughts, and attitudes to godly ones. And the way we do that is we, we have to have a clear understanding of what godliness looks like, don't we? Just like a police force has to have a, a good understanding of what normal is supposed to look like and, what, and the way society is, to, is supposed to function. In your home as parents, you need to know the way things are to function. But then you have to be able to identify sin. And there, that's what uh, that really comes into uh, uh, the difficulty. You have to identify sin. The, the problem is sin within your child's life <laughs> and your own life. And you have to identify it. And you have to be able to handle sin. You have to understand repentance or confession, repentance and forgiveness or even confrontation. You have to understand those things. Just like a police force, they have to understand crime and 
and, and getting rid of crime, we have to understand sin and getting rid of sin in our own lives. That's part of this discipline that Paul is talking about. And how do we know that? Well, we have completely dependent upon God's word for these things. We do not parent from our own whims. We don't parent just because we're being irritated. Well, I have to deal with this because they're irritating me. No, that's, that's not the right kind of parenting. We parent to the heart. We parent to the sin of our children. Not to the irritation of us. And most of the time, I mean, in the Dingus household, that happens so often. We don't parent until, and we don't discipline until oh, they irritate me. And then, boy, just let them have it. But that's not the way to parent. We have to identify anger. We have to identify bad company or bitterness or blame shifting or complaining or covetousness in that heart. A defiance, disloyalty, disrespect, gossip, hypocrisy, idolatry, impatience, impulsiveness. We've got to be able to see these as sins and address those things. Well, they don't affect me. Well, you're right. They may not, but they're still there. Sins in your child's life that need to be addressed. Inappropriate speech, inattentiveness, insensitivity, interrupting, uh, judging, envy, the love of approval, love of money, love of pleasure, love of self, lying, misuse of body, Pride, quarreling, laziness, stealing, selfishness, stinginess, stubbornness, teasing or jesting, ungratefulness, ungratefulness. We have to address these things. Unfaithfulness, unkindness, vindictiveness, and worry. Now that's just that's a, a list of 39 sins. 39 sins. Are there more than that in Scripture? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I wanted you to, to get, the grit, get an idea, get an understanding of what we have to deal with. You have to be able to identify these things. It's not that, well, I'm, gonna let, I'm, I'm just going to wait until I do something bad and then I'm going to get them. Or do something that irritates me and then I will get them. That's not the way to parent. We have to identify sin and we have to deal with sin in their life. And really, sins of the heart are what's important here. And there's a book uh, by Lou Priolo, Teaching Them Diligently. It's an excellent book. And he says, now here's the way you do it. When you're disciplining your child, ask certain questions. Draw certain things out so that they will come to a certain level of conviction. They'll be convicted over their sin let me give you just five questions. He had more, but I'll, I've narrowed it down to these five. Ask your child, what exactly did you do? And I try to do this at my home. We've been doing this for years. I set them down. Um, I, I will sit on the edge of the bed. They will face me. And I make them put their hands on my knees. Now, they can't do that anymore because they're too big, too old to put their hands there. But I make them. I say, what did you do? That's the time of confession. What happened? Exactly what happened. Now sometimes, well, he did this. and So if I bring him in, what is he going to say? Oh, well, he's not, 
I want to know exactly what happened and I want them to identify the sin. In fact, the second question is, do you know what God caused that, what you did, or caused what you did and what you said? And so you're raising the standard. You're putting up the standard before them. Here's what God says about what you just did. Number three, what went through your mind when you said it or did it? What were you thinking when you did this? And what you're wanting to pull out is sinful thinking. Sinful thinking. Wrong thinking. And then you want to get to motives. Verse number four is what did you want? What were you wanting? What was the desire of your heart when, uh, when you did this? Dealing with motives. Number five, are you more concerned about pleasing yourself or pleasing God? And that's dealing with what? Idols of the heart. What are you really trying to accomplish here? Who are you really trying to please? We want to bring our children up to that high standard. Then then you have to discipline. Then you have to discipline. You have to, you have to confront graciously and not with anger. Confront graciously. If you're angry, you better step back and just wait. Or you better send them to the room and you, they wait on you until you get your composure and then you go and approach the situation. And then the, next, you help them to see sin as sin. And then you pray with them. Now, I don't always pray with my children, but when there's certain intense problems that we realize that only God can help their heart, we pray. We pray about those things. And then you punish intentional wrong behavior. We punish those things. And we spank. There has to be a sting. And there's a special place on the child's anatomy which God created for that to happen. And Proverbs 13 points that out. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him Diligently. Important stuff. Basic stuff. This is what we need to be doing as fathers and mothers. Just by way of application. Is your home a place where sin is dealt with? Is sin, is there confrontation of sin? Is there confession of sin? Is there repentance of sin? Is there forgiveness of sin? Is sin dealt with properly? If it is, that's a place in which God is glorified. If it's not, God is not glorified. Now let's move on. B, next, Paul says, you, you, you bring them up in the discipline of the Lord and the instruction of the Lord. Now, I don't want to make this any more complicated. This is not complicated. This is very simple. We, teach our, we have to instruct our children. We teach them. We have to be concerned about these things to motivate us to do this. And we target the heart, as we did in the discipline stage. We target the heart in the instruction stage as well. You do not create lasting change by threatening or manipulating your children. There has to be instructions. What do you instruct them? Well, you teach them what you know. You teach them what you know. You teach them about God. You teach them about God's grace and God's word and God's wisdom. You teach them about God's design, His perfect design. This is the way things are to be. And then you teach them how 
and point out the corruption of that design when they're and point out sin and then that gives evidence or that gives opportunity to present the gospel it's the gospel folks that are going to change our children's life it's God at work in their heart it's not us trying to conform them but it's the heart issue and God deals with that heart we can provide we can do as much as we can and we are supposed to do that we need to do that we provide the instructions on those things we we teach God's commands. We teach them discernment. We do so. We teach them formally and informally. We teach them at our house at the dinner table. Sometimes I get my Bible out and say, and we just move through a passage and we discuss that passage and we teach from that passage. Sometimes we just teach them as we walk along the way, as we are taking a walk in the evenings and we do that quite a bit. But we, we do instruction. It's just constant instruction. So, we'll wrap it up here. It's by way of review. If parents want to provide a godly environment in which their children can thrive spiritually, we do not provoke our children to anger and we bring them up in the Lord. It's very simple. Very simple. Sometimes our society makes it so complex and they take it and look at so many angles that you know, Paul says, just do this. It's not any more complicated than that. Just obey this. And by way of application, are you, are you providing an environment? Are you providing that kind of environment where your children can spiritually thrive? Where your wife can thrive? Where you can thrive? Now, I talked about the frustrations and the difficulties it is to do this. As a father, I understand those things. You come home, you're dead tired. You work hard. And then you find that you have to parent. You have to instruct. You have to discipline. And you don't feel like it. How do we get motivated to do that? We get motivated to do that by reading the Word of God. When I am saturated myself with the Word of God, you know what? I have the motivation to get off the couch and do what needs to be done. When I'm feeding myself, these things, will I find, will take care of themselves. I naturally am motivated to do what I need to do. I have the energy. And I find that I'm dependent upon God and I realize these things and, and these things have to be done and so I'm more motivated to do them. This is not something that I just do on my own, but God is working within me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You for Your Word. How crystal clear it is, even in a complex, difficult issue of raising children. And the world has so many theories and so many ideas and making it so complex. When Your Word is just so simple, Lord, help us to to narrow our focus down and, and to focus on the right things within our families. And Lord, You've told us, it's very simple. Wives, respectfully submit. Husbands, lovingly lead. Children, obey with honor, with an attitude of honor. And, and in parents, 
just to just to train train in godliness lord help us to have godly families we pray these things in jesus name amen